0: Hello, and welcome to Shelf Love, a podcast and community that explores romantic love stories in fiction across media, time, and cultures. Shelf Love is for the curious and open-minded who joyfully question as they consume pop culture. I'm your host, Andrea Martucci, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Tina Benigno, assistant professor and faculty advisor, who will share her research on teen romance as a narrative for the extraordinary girl. Neoliberal feminism, empowerment discourses, and the Hunger Games, oh my. Tina, thank you for being here today. Can you share a bit more about yourself, your academic work, and how and why you have come to study extraordinary girlhood? Hi, thanks, Andrea. I'm Tina. I'll start with
1: my academic background. My PhD is in humanities, where I specialized in young people's media and cultures. I focused on girlhood and cinema and also care. And before that, I did a master's in film and media studies, and a bachelor's in cinema studies, and then I minored in English and Italian as well with that. So in my previous degrees, the work was very theoretical, but there was no qualitative research, no work with actual people, which is fine. When I knew I wanted to do a PhD, I knew that I wanted to actually also talk to people and find out their responses to certain films. In my master's, I spent a lot of time looking at spectatorship and also textual analysis, but I thought at that point it would be really interesting to hear what audiences interpreted from texts. And that included their reactions to certain formal qualities of texts, but also the content of them. And I grew up during like girl power. Yeah. (laughs) And I knew that there was something very interesting happening culturally at the time and socially with respect to girl media and the effect that
0: that was having the Spice Girls phenomenon has come up a lot. I, I feel like me also, Tina, <laughs> I think we're probably very similar in age. And I, I feel like the Spice Girls and the sort of like girl power thing was really big in the 90s and mm-hmm. the early 2000s. And then it's been interesting becoming an adult and looking at that through adult eyes. So what is girlhood studies? Girlhood studies
1: emerges more out of women and gender studies. So my, my work is pretty interdisciplinary and it does draw drive- upon on topics that would be studied in each of these disciplines. So with respect to the girlhood studies category, I really fit into there, not only because I look at texts that feature young women, but also very much so in speaking with actual girls, like girl audiences or teen girls in schools, which I'll talk about in a minute. And that's actually a similar approach that's advocated within childhood and youth studies. This idea of let's talk to the actual young people and find out their thoughts on this or how do these issues actually affect them as opposed to how adults think that certain policies and certain texts should be formed for them. So Mm -hmm. it starts with the person and then works around that way. So you're foregrounding the person in that case.
0: So it sounds like you did exactly what you were talking about. So you actually (laughs) spoke with teen girls about their experience and then asked them to give their take on the media that you shared with them.
1: Yes. So the dissertation has a lot of different components to it. And as an interdisciplinary project, it was a little complicated at times, but also quite enjoyable and rewarding for me as somebody who's very much interested in different things and different approaches. There were three main approaches or techniques I used with this project. The first included qualitative research with teen girls from two different schools in Toronto, Ontario. The other component was actually doing a formal textual close analysis of two particular scenes from two particular texts, one being a popular show, one being a popular movie, YA speculative fiction text. And then the other aspect was socio cultural historical analysis as well. So, in that, I stepped back a bit and I explored the themes that I was discussing in the other two areas with some more social, political, cultural theory and analysis interwoven into it. So, with respect to the study, there were group interviews or focus groups, and they had a video elicitation component to them. So, originally, I knew there would be interviews involved. But I was interested in two things specifically. I was interested in teen girls making media as a way to challenge some issues that they felt weren't being addressed properly in society, specifically related to romance. And so I was very much interested in the romance text throughout my academic career. In ways, I've been drawn to relationship narratives, whether they were like love in the renaissance or like contemporary short fiction that looked at love, sex and death. But also in my master's, I looked at imagination and romantic longing in some international films and how those can shape how we think about our own experiences of imagination and romantic longing. So I was interested in romance for the teen girl, how what they thought about it. But I also knew that had been done bunch in in various disciplines. So I'm not a psychologist, but I like to read about social psychology a lot. So I had been reading a lot of studies that had been done with young people with respect to love narratives from a different perspective. But nevertheless, there is plenty of research on that.
0: What's kind of the literature review summary of the work done from social psychology in that area? What's the gist? So a lot of times there's a moral panic around young people and
1: them being very impressionable towards depictions of love and sexuality. So if you go back to, there's a text from 1920 by Herbert Bloomer. I think he's actually a sociologist. He identifies that there actually doesn't need to be this moral panic around young people and sex from movies. They're not the movies are not going to make them have sex.
0: It sounds like these studies that you're alluding to are really focused on like cultivation theory type stuff. Cause effect, yeah. So a lot of the studies are what effect does this have on this? And yeah.
1: that's not really how I was approaching my work. And there is an interesting study that was done in Belgium that looked at teen girl audiences interpretations of romance for action heroines and in dystopian texts I believe and they found that there wasn't much association they found that the participants who had a higher parasocial relationship with the characters who like felt they identified very much so with the characters also had greater romantic longing or like they felt more affected by that narrative so that was an interesting study but so with respect to my project, I thought, I'm not sure where I'm going with this here. But then March for Our Lives happened. There were the, there was a Stoneman Douglas school shootings. And so 2018, I was noticing a lot of media attention to young people taking action with respect to activism in a public sense. And this was right when I was trying to pin down my schools where I was going to be doing my research. And I thought, this is really interesting. I'm interested in how maybe these girls are thinking about other things like, social activism. And that was also something I cared a lot about growing up as well. Mm-hmm. So this was, things were coming together. And so then I, I still framed my study as being about creating media. And I still used the romance storyline from some texts. But I also threw in a session for each school where we explored their thoughts on what an activist was. And I'm so glad I did because I ended up noticing some commonalities in their responses to the love storylines and their views on being an activist or what that would require of them.
0: So the first study that you published on this, one part I thought was really interesting was, and you tied this to the ideologies around neoliberal feminism, but the idea that instead of being, you become an activist. So you have to do all of this personal work and you have to put the work in yourself before you can be an activist out in the public sphere. So it's a very like binary state of being. You are or you aren't. And you are recognized as such versus like you say, I am. Can you talk more about What the teen girls that you spoke with, where did you see the echoes of neoliberal feminism in what they were saying? And how are you thinking about neoliberal feminism in this context?
1: Okay, so yeah, it comes back to the empowerment discourse of that girl power that we're talking about that's within this post-feminism that was prevalent at the time. It was very much the dominant feminist discourse in the late 80s, 90s. And it's that there was no
0: no longer a need for feminism. Like,
1: girl power, we're empowered, we can do this, there's no need for feminism anymore. That's a really simplified version of it. We did
0: it, we have equality, girls can do anything.
1: Yeah, not everybody subscribed to that. And so neoliberal feminism, it still shares some of those qualities, but it's also acknowledging that there is a need for feminism. Lean in, like Sharon Sandberg, and these texts are very much positioned as supporting feminism. And this is good. They're encouraging empowerment. They're encouraging climbing up the corporate ladder. And the problem with this is that it can fail to recognize that there are certain opportunities that are not actually available. There are certain barriers for people, usually people of working class, marginalized people in society who
0: may end up not actually having the means or the access to get there. The reason you're not getting promoted at work is because you as a woman are not being assertive enough and asking for raises or negotiating your salary as opposed to there are these larger systemic forces at work that disenfranchise certain people based on their identity, like women, but also Even more markedly, people who have marginalized identities, such as like racial background or social class or or all these things, right? So it's saying, no, it's true that we're not equal, but you solely are responsible for fixing this for yourself, as opposed to like maybe there's like a bigger problem. There's a root cause for this that until you address that all together, we're playing whack a mole. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. There's this mentality of ask for your raise, get that promotion. Meanwhile, your nanny at home is watching your children. So there's also that element of acknowledging social reproduction at play. There is this larger social structure that perpetuates the inequality or the inequity as well. Going back to the empowerment aspect here. So there's this sense of needing to be better needing to get better, just be empowered, like to quote Sarah Benet Weiser in her popular feminism book as well. But it doesn't acknowledge that you can't just be empowered necessarily. There are certain social impediments to that, and they relate to capitalism and neoliberalism. So with neoliberalism, there's the onus of being put on the individual to improve their circumstances without acknowledging that there's not a whole lot that can necessarily be done without acknowledging the disparity and the inequality and the oppression that exists.
0: Just work harder working 80 hours a week at minimum wage jobs, as opposed to, hey, why can you not make a living wage on minimum wage working 40 hours? Yeah.
1: And so then going back to the actual narratives, the love stories that I was talking about. So first of all, in the clips that I showed them, their responses to the Texts were pretty typical that you would expect from a, like a teen girl in North American society to respond to a love story. There was some giggling, there was some like oh, cringing, you know, <laughs> like little things like that. They also had some very cerebral responses to what was going on interrelationally between the characters, and part of that is because the the scenes were like seen out of context. But then the really interesting part is um, that the girls that I interviewed were really compelled by the girl characters power and strength and their extraordinariness. And so it's there. There's that neoliberal component there of the powerful girl. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that being empowered and being a powerful girl are bad by any means. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when that image becomes the standard to which people compare themselves and then interestingly may actually feel inferior and discouraged to move forward in the way that they would like in their lives, that's where there's a problem. And that's where I see this neoliberal rationality here of needing to be better, needing to be more confident. There's a really good article by Gillen Orgad called The Cult of Confidence. And so that feeling of needing to be better or be empowered and it's great to want it to be an empowered girl. But that feeling of not being good enough or not powerful enough or not brave enough like Katniss, like next level brave is the way one of them referred to her. It really paralleled how the girls described what they needed to be in order to be more active for the issues that they cared about. And they cared about issues. So this is also the thing. The romance narratives of these texts ended up being a proxy or a way to talk about relationships and the things and the people they cared about. It wasn't just about the love story. Mm -hmm. And it was only through using them that I started to understand that they actually cared a lot about sacrificing things if they needed to for the sake of their loved ones. And their loved ones included their family. There was a lot of reference to their families and concern for what consequences would come from them participating in public activism. But also in the discussions around the relationship scenes, they shared a vulnerability about how, when Katniss is trying to help Peter heal, when he's injured in the games, one, they acknowledge that there are relationship and gender dynamics at play which was really interesting. One of them pointed out that she was curious to see if their genders had been reversed, if their roles would have stayed the same.
0: So this is in the first Hunger Games book (laughs) movie where Katniss and Peeta are in the Hunger Games and they are both wounded at various points, but I believe the the scene you're talking about, Peeta has been very gravely injured and yeah. Katniss stumbles upon him. What's really interesting about Peta is his skill is he's he's like strong, but he's like a baker and an artist, right? So that's <laughs> yeah. kind of subverting the the gender norms there. And Katniss is the the badass hunter who's awesome with a bow and arrow. So yeah. he has actually disguised himself by blending into the mud, and that's how he's used his artistry to survive. But then Katniss has to take care of him and has to perform a relationship for the spectators to get the medicine to save him. Is that a good summary of that scene? Yes, yeah. And then she goes up to get the stuff
1: as well I think that's another scene but
0: yeah oh right right because what they do is they entice her into conflict by saying the medicine you need is going to be over here Ooh, maybe we'll get a bloodbath while you try to take yeah. care of somebody by getting some medicine <laughs> yeah perfect that was a great description of it <laughs> cool yeah so you showed this scene to the teen girls and I assume they're watching this together with the other teen girls or are they by themselves at so this...
1: they're in their group so okay. each
0: school was in their
1: own respective group and these are small groups so I want to point out that I'm aware that the responses might not be the same everywhere. I also want to point out that these responses are very geographically and temporally and contextually located. So that being said, they were in small groups, and that's another thing. So they were with their peers, and I had encourage them as like a film trained scholar like pay attention to the lighting the music the angles yeah. and they're like oh my god
0: i would be like feeling so bad if i was Gail watching this actually so i forgot to mention yes because this is all being filmed katniss she likes PETA, but she's like a little ambivalent on a romantic mm-hmm. angle with PETA. the performance is she has come to understand that if she puts on a show of romance that is what the capital people are really looking for. So she's performing, but there's like something going on with Gail, her hunting pal from District 12. And we get a shot of him In Mm -hmm. the coal mine or whatever, he's watching and he kind of is like, "Oh no, Katniss is lost to me" or something. (laughs) So there's that. There's a lot of like romantic entanglement, like this whole love triangle Mm -hmm. that we're set up to care about in the scene. But it's also very interesting. I'm really curious about the reactions from the girls because there's also then this social dynamic of they're not watching this by themselves; they're watching this with their peers. And so, like a certain amount of reaction you can also assume is like how will other people interpret the scene and what is the reaction I should have to this? Yeah,
1: yeah that could be it for sure. I, I wondered about that as well. And they were in conversation with one another as well with respect to what was going on when I said, okay, let's talk about this. But going back to that dynamic and how Katniss is reluctant here, she's a reluctant participant here. The girls pointed that out. One of them said she's trying to survive here. Like she's not really interested. We think she loves him, but also... They were very aware that she's in the Hunger Games. It's a matter of life and death. Her family is very important to her sister. So they recognized uh, there was more than just the romantic love story there. They were very eager to risk anything they needed to save their loved ones. And they didn't mean their boyfriend necessarily. So that and some other things they said really foregrounded care for not necessarily a romantic relationship, although they responded... Like you might expect, and they enjoyed that storyline. But it's the care and then the connection. And I see connection as being connected to community as well, loved ones. And I see it as in contrast or opposition to the individualism of neoliberalism. I see it as relationships, basically. Care and connection, I see as just like relations, relationships. And Mm -hmm. they really cared about that. And they cared about social issues and they cared about the world and people being okay outside of the love story. And unfortunately, a lot of the barriers or the things holding them back from maybe participating in or being in the world in ways that would facilitate those things for them, whether it be socially as an activist or even maybe in their relationships, did come back to that sense of needing to improve themselves. And it's okay to want to improve yourself. It's great to want to improve yourself. But why or where is that coming from is I think the question is it coming from a place of I'm not confident enough, I'm not brave enough, I need a thicker skin is actually a quotation from one of them like to be doing these things, because this is the standard. And this is what it looks like it's supposed to be and I don't fit that or is it improvement because you want to facilitate these relationships in a way that is beneficial for everyone, including yourself and the world. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I watched Hunger Games one and two, because I I knew we were going to be talking about this. And I read the books like on a binge, maybe 10-ish years ago. I was an adult in my early 20s. And I am a romance reader, so of <laughs> course I was really compelled and perhaps frustrated by the romantic arc within The Hunger Games. And so watching the movies like many years after reading and originally watching them, I thought it was really interesting again from like the perspective of a married adult woman how much different the romance played to me this time yeah. around because I remember being very invested in the romantic relationship the first time around and then this time I was like, yeah, this there's like really nothing romantic here. I originally always thought Gail was like the one for her and (laughs) I was very frustrated. And then I started being like, oh my God, like Peter really loves her and Katniss doesn't care romantically about him and that's fine. Katniss really only cares about her sister and her mother to a certain extent. So I'm curious, in your description here, you said the discussion of romantic narratives is actually a proxy for speaking about love, care, and connection more broadly. So how did you see the the girls' reactions? It sounds like when they were encountering, specifically in The Hunger Games, the romantic relationship there, they weren't necessarily focused on how much does Peeta and or Gail love Katniss? How much does Katniss love either of these people and they were thinking about love and care more like between people like friendship or family love as opposed to that romantic love is that what was going on there part
1: of it yeah no for sure I think there was definitely that part of it about it not being about how much love, but it was also that they were really interested in the behaviors between them and the motivations or the oh. reasons. And so they were wondering, they were confused about why PETA was being like, he wasn't wanting Katniss to go get him the bomb that he needed. But then another person said, actually, he's protecting her, but that's being stupid because he needs it. There was a lot of, they didn't say it's stupid. Like I'm yeah. putting words in their mouths here. But so there was a lot of like really analyzing the dynamics and almost putting value on what behavior was more important with respect to the care versus what was needed. There was a really a real interest and what was right and what was wrong behavior, but they also recognized that there are nuances and complexity within the situation, and they attributed some of it to gender as well.
0: Yeah, what was, and you mentioned this earlier, that there were some questions around, oh, I wonder how this would have been different if Mm -hmm. the situation was switched with Katniss and Peta Mm -hmm. in that scene. What were they speculating on? Just like a passing comment. I think it was with respect to if maybe Katniss was the injured
1: one. They didn't actually say, but I think they were saying if Katniss was the injured one and Peter was going to go get it, other people might not really think anything of it because, mm-hmm. you know, the man's going to protect the woman. I, they didn't say it like that, but that was the suggestion, if I remember correctly. That being said, Katniss is pretty headstrong and doesn't really like that sort of thing so they were also commenting on that quality. That being said so even though she possesses some of these maybe non-traditionally feminine traits she is still like a attractive white heteronormative character. I have to acknowledge that in this as well so that's
0: just worth mentioning. Yeah you know what's weird also upon rewatching it and this is totally appropriate given the story setup Katniss is almost like without desire in -hmm. the romantic sense. And Mm -hmm. I think contextually that makes sense given the dire uh, Mm -hmm. circumstances. And she's in a position of survival, right? She is not in this moment most concerned with who she's going to date or marry or kiss. Mm -hmm. I think maybe that also goes against the stereotypes of a teen girl because Mm -hmm. the stereotype in the media is that teen girls are most concerned about silly frivolous things. Mm -hmm. And Katniss is literally just like, um, hi, I would like enough food to eat and I would like to survive the next five minutes." And it's almost like everybody around her is much more wrapped up in romance, even her suitors in the story, but then also like the capital and the narratives being shaped about her are very much about like turning her into this object of desire and giving her a romantic story that people can use to relate to her because she's so unrelatable and cold as a person. If she's doing what she's doing to save Peta. That's romantic. If she's doing what she's doing so that she can survive and go back to her sister and mother because they need her so that they can survive, that nobody gives a crap about. Yeah. So
1: two things are really coming to mind right now with that. So with respect to her character being like that, commonality of this trends, even if you will, like in contemporary teen YA media, films, television, where we have this extraordinary, this powerful woman-girl character. And I also look at Sabrina Spellman from Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. But there are these strong, powerful, powerful, super-powerful, supernatural-powerful girl characters. One of the things I say in the dissertation, that is, I think, aligned with this neoliberal feminism. And it's complex because, on the one hand, these characters are challenging antiquated ideas of femininity. But at the same time, they're not. And at the same time, they are within these mass media texts that are products of the very system in which they're presenting the illusion that they're challenging. So it seems like Katniss is challenging a bad government. Well, is it really that progressive? Is it actually? And this goes back to the genre as well. So to go back to what you were talking about, the dystopian genre itself has a like a varying history. So in the 50s, the works of dystopian genre during that time, were actually indeed challenging. And I'm talking about books, like literature. They were indeed meant to challenge social structures and systems through like a fictional, science fictional context. Today, YA, dystopian cinema, is not really working the same way it just can't or it isn't necessarily as effective or functional the way the literature of the 50s was so there's that Mm -hmm. genre element as well but yes with respect to Katniss and her survival and trying to be positioned in this desire narrative that is appealing and that's also a very clever device or a tool I think of the structure that's creating these narratives as well, because we're getting that storyline, which is great. I love a good love story. Who am I kidding? I'm not saying love is bad at all. And I had similar reactions to the narrative book. Like I was all teen Gale when I read it like 10 years ago. And then I watched this. It feels
0: like what you're alluding to with the teen narratives of today or the recent Mm -hmm. past, it's all noise and no signal like yeah she's badass like she's changing the world and then you're like she doesn't really give a crap about changing the world she wants to save her sister if anything gail is much more engaged in sort of like the revolution and katniss is and this is really if I remember correctly, what the last installment really focuses on. She is essentially just a pawn. She's a figurehead, but she has no real power and nobody listens to her. And in the second book movie, they literally, there's a whole plan that nobody clues her into because they know that she is so focused on the individual's that she mm-hmm. cares about, that if push came to shove, will sacrifice the larger cause for the individuals she cares about, which I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but her eye is never on the larger project. I don't even know if at the end she ever really gets there.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think,
0: yeah, I can't remember. I've only seen the first one of a bunch. The
1: last ones I haven't seen in a while, but...
0: I think they with, get a little bit boring from a yeah. movie
1: perspective. <laughs> so with respect to her character and that figure, the extraordinary girl in these speculative fiction adaptations. I think she is an inspiring character, these powerful girls. They're eliciting a desire to be extraordinary. They are created within these narratives as a device to, in a way, satisfy the audience members' desire to challenge what is becoming increasingly acknowledged as uh, a very complicated and oppressive ideological system yeah. <laughs> that the texts are actually created in. I think that media culture is very aware that right now, young people are not having it. They are demonstrating, they are aware of what they care about, and that they want to take action. And I think that these teen girl characters reflect this cultural trend or phenomenon or whatever not to say that youth activism is new because it's not it's been going on for a long time in the americas especially it's just getting a lot of popular media attention right now but i think that because of that there's an awareness that there's an interest in this in young people and so there's these texts that are acknowledging and satisfying that desire for a powerful girl lead character but also at the same time who's creating these texts that system yeah I'm done with popular ones right now. And so these texts are almost like there's the guise of them being revolutionary because of their figures, these Mm -hmm. girl characters in them. So I don't know if Katniss herself within the narrative is actually not a good figure. With respect to the love story and her power, I think it's really interesting that care for her family and care for The world, her dystopian world. That's the other thing we have to keep in mind. The context from which she emerges, or like comes out of, is District Twelve. It's a poor district. This is a dystopian society as well. What is it like to be living in that?
0: I know. So I was watching the Hunger Games, and I I put this poll up on Twitter. I was essentially saying I remember watching this the first time and being 100% team Gale, but now I'm Mm. more ambivalent. And I asked people who they shipped, and so the (laughs) options were Peta, Gale none, old maid Katniss, and then other, and then you could comment. Okay, so here are the results of this. So by a slim margin, most people shipped PETA and Katniss, 44%. Only 9% Gale, but 43%, this was surprising, none, like so no romantic lead, and then 4% said other. But I feel like most of the people who said other were like none, like she should have just been by herself at the end. And this is not a poll of, the target audience of of young girls at the time this came out. But I think it's interesting that PETA is more in the lead than Gale, because I think for a young person countering it, Gale was like much more in the foreground as like the romantic lead. But so many people said none. Like Katniss did not want to be with anybody by the end of this and just wanted to be alone, but then had to conform by the end into like satisfying, uh, I, I don't know, the greater good by marrying Peta and having children, even though she was like super traumatized and just needed therapy. Oh, I think that's what the, I think that's what the other was like. Oh, okay. Katniss probably should have just had a very good, strong relationship with a, a very competent therapist <laughs> by the end. But it's like we we got caught in this story, into this idea that she has to end up with somebody. It's Peter Gale, right? These are our options, and there wasn't even a consideration that she didn't have to end up with anybody or one of those two, like there are other options here, but the narrative ends, and maybe it's just supposed to be bleak, but the narrative ends with pigeonholing her into the role of wife and mother. It really does. And
1: I, so I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said it doesn't actually even present alternative options. And I, so within the options presented to us, I have to confess, I wanted her to end up with PETA. I'm not going to lie. I wanted her to have that life, which is interesting because there are these scripts, that circulate in our North American Western society and contemporary society as well. So these love scripts, these love discourses, they you know, depend on so many factors. But within the context from which I was watching this or reading this, that I was like, okay, finally. I was like, okay, I can read now. Right. And it, I'm, I say that as somebody who really strongly doesn't think that those are the only options. I, and I don't think it's wrong if those are the options that you pick, but I think you're right. And that was how it was presented. And I know that actually... Just last year, there was a study that was published that looked at specifically teen girls' responses to the love stories in The Hunger Games by Shara Crookston, if anybody's curious. And so there's a lot more discussion there about if the girls were happy with that, if the audiences were okay with that, what they thought about that. And that wasn't quite... The focus of my work like the discussion was with respect to those scenes and then I really thought it was so neat that the care and that feeling mm-hmm. of wanting to improve oneself was what I recognized as being some themes mm-hmm. for these texts and this, the powerful figure that they were admiring
0: right I've never seen the chilling adventures of Sabrina I definitely am familiar with Sabrina the teenage witch but different. I understand the <laughs> reboot is quite different what is the romantic romantic relationship in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, oh. and, and how are you seeing the care and yeah. connection come up in that? So there's a lot of different
1: love storylines throughout that series. We looked at the very beginning, so the beginning of the first episode or part, as they call it. So Sabrina's half human, half witch, and this is a, a dark or supernatural show. Okay, so she's half witch well almost witch and half human and she's on the cusp of her 16th birthday which is when she has to decide if she wants to embrace this witch aspect of her identity and so she takes she has to go to a different academy for that so she's taking her boyfriend harvey who's a human into the woods and this is the scene they're in the woods and it's a really like stylistically interesting scene and she's trying to tell him like okay i have to go to another school now and this is what's going to happen. And he's like, why are you leaving? I don't understand. And then so she tells him that she's a half witch and he has a horrible reaction. So this is the thing. Before she tells him, he he says, you can tell me anything. I mean, I'm your boyfriend. You can trust me. And so she tells him and he lips out. He gets really upset. And then she erases his memory. That's the gist of it.
0: Like you do and, when people yeah. <laughs> have that. That's the superpower I could really get behind. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that didn't go well. Let's try this again. <laughs> that
1: would be fantastic like, oh my goodness, let me tell you. So in our discussions around that scene, a few of the girls didn't like that. Well, they thought that was quite realistic, actually, that you would say you would reassure somebody that you're not going to react a certain way. And then when you find out the information, you're not reacting the way you promised you would. So they found that a bit upsetting, but also realistic. So there, was, there were these very cerebral responses, these very logical responses to both shows. So that is what kind of prompted our discussion with respect to relationships. And it was kind of a less exciting conversation around this, <laughs> of, understandably. A lot of them hadn't actually seen that before either. And so they didn't have a lot of the other context. Most people had seen The Hunger Games, whereas Sabrina one, they hadn't. So I think they were still having trouble suspending their disbelief, or is there understanding that this is like within the narrative Within the diegesis of the show, so within the world of that storyline, that was more normal than it might be in a... One girl said, I would call 911. My boyfriend said he was a witch. I'd be like, what the hell? So they were joking around like that. But it really was that dynamic that can play out in a relationship with respect to trust and with respect to how emotions play with respect to identity and behavior and and what you do to try to be with somebody yeah Mm. but they recognized that there was care in her decision to you know erase the memory as well
0: okay so were they thinking through that similar to PETA saying I know that I may be dooming myself to death, but Katniss, I do not want you to go get this medicine because you're going to put yourself in danger. Mm-hmm. That, that Sabrina, even though it hurt her to erase Harvey's memory or to not have the reaction that she wanted there, that really it, she was making a choice that was the best for him because she cared about him.
1: That was a little bit of it. There, it wasn't as explicit. I think the care with respect to that conversation around that show was more about caring about the things you do in general to keep a relationship going. So I see it as an act of care for him. Mm -hmm. I think they did too, but it wasn't like that was the focus of our discussion, but it was more also in Sabrina's actions in the show, in other aspects of the show, a lot of her behavior comes out of care. And so that became something that I look at when I do my analysis as well. But for the girls looking at the relationship dynamics, and that's really what they were focusing on. I think the care was tied to other effective emotional experiences as well. And they end up feeling of betrayal even. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me, the betrayal, right? What you were talking about, he, he was like, no, I really care about you. You can tell me anything. I think the sense of betrayal there is, I mean, that is that is a lot because even if, I'm trying to imagine I'm, I'm Harvey and my girlfriend is like, by the way, I'm a witch. Like the freak out to me actually is inappropriate because it's kind of like, if you truly know and care about this person, do you believe that you knew them so little that this revelation changes everything about them? Or is there maybe more to understand? Should there be more curiosity there? That's what their reactions were. That was pretty
1: much how they responded. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly what they were thinking. So they understood that they're like, this is realistic, but also what you just said. They had a very similar response. Oh, another thing in that discussion, the idea of a traditional heteronormative romance storyline came up from one of the girls, even though both shows have that. In this particular scene, for some reason, that discussion came up with respect to, I think... Maybe because of the scenario or just in general, it was worth talking about as these mainstream texts were. Sabrina actually really does acknowledge later on. I think it really tries to address some heteronormative narratives. And I think it does so pretty well actually later on. But in that beginning scene, that was something that one of the girls flagged as important to her. Yeah,
0: Yeah. And in your interviews, I know you've talked about this. Essentially, the girls were very aware of how their actions would impact their families. And this definitely feels connected to the storyline in The Hunger Games, but then also near liberalism, (laughs) where it's this sort of like the focus on the individual. And I suppose we can expand to say the individual and their immediate loved ones. Okay, I need to protect these people, even though I understand that if everybody bands together and pushes back against the harmful forces, like potentially everybody could be better off. And this is not an indictment of that belief because we understand that this is kind of part of the power of these systems of oppression Mm -hmm. is that a lot of the choices in the hunger games are everybody knows this is wrong but if you're the first person or one of the first people to step out of line you will be quashed quickly and your family will be hurt nobody really wants to be the first because well maybe this will inspire greater action and eventually we can bring down the capital but Uh in the meantime me and my loved ones will be harmed or dead or whatever in this this scenario so totally valid but also really that is the problem that If people, if we as a society could come together and a collective force push back, we would be successful instead of having these sort of like martyrs who are flogged publicly, which is what the girls were speaking about being afraid of, Mm -hmm. right? Like if they were very visible that they become a target or that they have the validity of their activism questioned right? Not only would I and potentially my family be a target, but then also people might say you're too young or mm-hmm. you haven't proven yourself enough mm-hmm. to have these opinions. And yeah, it's super complicated because this is getting so far afield of your research. But, oh, go ahead. but like, how do we as a society, okay, we can intellectually understand these things and we can even read and watch stories that explore these things. There's no answer, really. And even if you are an extraordinary girl with magical powers or amazing ability to shoot anything with your bow and arrow or whatever what is the solution what is the path how do we actually come together to do this and i know you said in the research that you did a lot of the activities and behaviors that the girls were talking about were like i care about environmental issues so like Mm. i'm going to stop using plastic Mm -hmm. and make sure i don't use water and it's kind of like well that's good but like also everybody could do that and it still wouldn't really solve the problems
1: yeah So the short answer is we need a different system, but that takes some time and a lot of collectivity. I think coming back to this topic of care and connection, I think the girls who don't have what I refer to as social power and public personas, like maybe um, Emma Gonzalez in the news or Katniss on screen, that sort of thing. So those girls are the ones I see with public personas real or fictional, and I see them as having social power. But the girls in my interviews, they're not in the public. They weren't. Mm -hmm. And so I think they, at least I can only speak from our interviews, they recognize that their connections and their relationships are significant and that they do matter. They know that's how we've got to do it, that they have to come together. But I don't think it is actually that clear. I think that's one of the things I was saying early on when I started putting this dissertation together, is that the very fact that there are these standards, these figures of extraordinary girls that exist in this neoliberal media culture complicates the ability for girls with less social power to actually to actually make the change. But I, I think it's happening. I do think young people are taking steps that they need to with respect to what they care about in the world more and more, whether or not that fits into definitions of what they would call activism or not. Things that aren't necessarily individual, like mm-hmm. be turning the lights off. Those are the things that I see as these individual measures that they feel obligated to perform. I know that can be described as activism, but I think... Basically, the quick answer, the simple answer is, I hope by offering insights and by other very well established academics and scholars and regular working class people, recognizing and acknowledging the problems with how some of these neoliberal rationalities are. And coming together and acknowledging that there can be some work towards change and maybe changing what the dominant is. But by goodness, there's only so much I can say. Yeah.
0: Like if there was an answer out there that people who really sat down and thought about this and are do this professionally i don't think there is an answer there's certainly no easy answer and the onus should not be on any one group of people to solve these problems And i think it's definitely interesting though when thinking about it through the lens of these extraordinary girl narratives it sounds like especially in contrast to earlier dystopian fictional narratives that it in one sense the teen girl saves the world but also in the other sense it creates distance between how teen girls identify themselves and the activist figure and it it makes it a little bit harder to imagine that they themselves could ever do that or impact change and certainly not in the way that it's presented in these ya fictional narratives and so fiction is obviously awesome because it can help you imagine the possibilities and so if the way that the possibilities are being presented over and over again is you have to be born half witch and also (laughs) you have to have developed this very particular skill set that that enables you to succeed in this world or whatever then it creates that like yeah. sense of helplessness or that sense sure. of I myself can do nothing to actually change this and and hope Definitely. is the most dangerous thing as president snow says right
1: yeah and yet I have hope i I really do I think young people are are very informed and very active in various ways and what you just said is exactly one of the things that I say that there can be that discordance there that there can be that like separation and distance between those, you have to be extraordinary, and then you compare yourself to that, and you think, no, I can't. But there is something to be said about representation of strong characters as well. So I think there are a whole lot of interrelationship things that happen between media texts and reception. It's just important to pay attention to who's creating what the system is to be literate of the actual context and larger issues that might be functioning with respect Mm -hmm. to their creation. But that's not to say that we can't take nuggets of inspiration. And I also think we need to talk to the actual people, young people, and find out what matters to them. like With respect to the romance narrative, instead of imposing what we're going to talk about Mm -hmm. with respect to love, I was able to induce that They also really wanted to talk about their care for their families.
0: Right. And there's no right answer in terms of who should Katniss end up with? There's no right answer there. Right. And it's interesting to hear their perception of who does Katniss love and who do we want her to prioritize in these situations?
1: Yeah. And why are we even asking that question? Because it's presented as a narrative, but also that is very valid to exist in itself as a question and also... We want to talk about her family. We want to talk about like one of their own experiences with wanting to make sure that they're able to give their family enough attention, which mm-hmm. they felt like they might not be able to do if they had an activist agenda, for example, mm-hmm. like a public activist agenda.
0: Oh, what's interesting about that is it feels very all or nothing, right? Everything feels like a choice and you have to commit fully to a relationship, to your family, to activism, to having a career, to having children one day or whatever. It, mm-hmm. Everything feels like this monumental choice that must be made. And there's no sense of, listen, you will never be perfect at any of these things. Just accept that like everybody's figuring it out and nobody reaches this like state of perfect relationship, perfect activist, Mm -hmm. perfect mother or whatever. And, but it feels like the responses that you got from the teen girls was like, was that feeling of like never being able to just be.
1: And the topic of choice is really interesting because that really does align with a neoliberal mentality. Not everyone has choices about things. Sometimes the immigrant moves here and has to become a nanny at the expense of maybe not even taking care of her own children so that somebody else can make the choice between taking a pay raise, climbing the ladder, working extra hours. I'm not saying that those things are bad, but I'm just saying that topic of choice is really interesting because we think everybody has a choice. That's the status quo. Mm -hmm. That's what we think. But choices is not actually an option for everyone either. What are the choices? What are the options? So The
0: the more we think we have control of our choices, the more it obfuscates how little we truly have choices in or how much we're being guided to make particular choices that are to benefit the state, the structure, whatever, the the status quo. Yeah.
1: And also being aware that to be able to have a choice is associated with some extent of privilege as well. Mm -hmm. And that's, not bad, but be aware of it that somebody might not even be able to say that they have to choose between this and that. (laughs) It's just the the circumstances lend themselves to decisions or behaviors or actions or what have you.
0: So Dr. Tina Benigno, thank you so much for being here with me today. This is such an interesting discussion. Where can people find more information about your work or keep up with what you're doing? Twitter would probably be the
1: fastest way to get me tina belinda is my handle and then on there i have a link to my homepage and also my work faculty bio awesome thanks so much
0: for being here today thank you so much it was such a pleasure to chat with you thank you so much for spending time with me today if you enjoyed today's episode please subscribe rate or review on your favorite podcast app or tell a friend check out shelflovepodcast.com for transcripts and other resources if you want to join the conversation about the topics that we discuss on Shelf Love, I'd encourage you to check out Shelf Love's Patreon at patreon.com slash ShelfLove. Thank you to Shelf Love's $20 a month supporters, Gail, Copper Dog Books, Frederick Smith, and John Jacobson. See your name listed as a Patreon supporter on the Shelf Love website if you join at any level. That's patreon.com slash shelflove. That's all for today. Thanks so much. Bye.